Dr. Isa Blumi is an associate professor of Turkish and Middle Eastern Studies at Stockholm University within the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. He has taught and researched at universities located in Germany, Turkey, the US, Belgium, the UAE, Switzerland, and Albania and Kosovo. He has authored and co-authored numerous books, including Destroying Yemen, What Chaos in Arabia Tells Us About the World, which was published in 2018. You can find further details and links in the description below. The following conversation is about the ongoing conflict in Yemen, its historical origins and the economic and geopolitical interests that are sustaining and driving it. Dr. Isa Blumi, it's great to see you. It's, I've been following you for quite some time on Twitter and, and other places. I mean, you've been writing about Yemen since at least 2010. So it's, uh, it's great to finally meet you face to face. And thank you so much for doing this. Well, it's a great pleasure to have uh, met you and join your audience. I'm looking forward to speaking to everyone, sharing my perspective on Yemen. Yes. So today we are speaking about Yemen. Now, if we look at the news, if we watch the news, if we read the news, there's almost nothing that's uh, spoken about Yemen. And yet, if you go on social media, if you know where to look, it looks like there's a humanitarian disaster that's unfolding there. So could you please explain what's happening right now as we speak in Yemen? Uh, it, since March of 2015, uh, a broad coalition put together by the Obama administration uh, with some assistance from Britain and other European allies, uh, in, initiated a campaign to try to reassert uh, uh, control over a process of transition that had taken place already uh, in 2010-2011 uh, with the, the formal collapse of the previous regime. Um, that had found many decades of support from the United States uh, under the rule of Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, he proved to be increasingly difficult to manage, uh, especially because of the opposition that he had created inside the country itself. And so uh, very much like what we saw in Egypt, in Tunis, in Libya, Syria, and elsewhere, uh, it became a, a, a process of controlled demolition of an old uh, system of diplomacy, of economic relations, of political alliances, and to create a new, more uh, dynamic one with uh, a special Muslim Brotherhood uh, coloration to it uh, through the uh, recruitment that has been a long process of happening with uh, the emergence of Qatar and, and the Erdogan regime and, and Turkey being the main conduits for this process of creating a new generation of potential leaders. Uh, Yemen was very much part of this process. And unfortunately for the, those interested parties wanting to maintain uh, hegemony over Yemen and its considerable natural resources, its strategic location, uh, uh, they could not fully integrate uh, the, the wide range of opposition that Ali Abdullah Saleh and his relationship to the, uh, the West had created. And so the response to what became known as the Arab Spring, uh, the street demonstrations that had emerged in quite um, broad range of actors who are not entirely united, uh, led to a rather confusing situation, especially in Yemen, but in other countries. And it became clear that uh, unless the United States intervened directly and determined who could participate in a confidence building process, uh, finding 
a means to uh, bring a new form of government uh, into Yemen, uh, that they, it would be somewhat beyond their ability to control who's actually on the ground. So they started to dictate in 2011, 2012, a, um, an intermediary government um, they, under the former vice president of uh, Ali Abdullah Salam, uh, a man named Mansour Hadi. Um, and they, they staged an elections in which there was no other one running against Hadi. Um, and all he needed was one vote and he would be the interim president in 2012. And in the meantime, the Americans then selected who can actually participate in the subsequent negotiations about the formal, um, uh, let's say, transition process ending. So this interim government, which the Americans love to do, uh, impose interim governments whenever they feel that they um, don't have full control over the, uh, the uh, subsequent elections, um, had uh, considerable uh, legislative power, at least legally this is what the Americans in the United Nations were suggesting, that as interim president, he had executive power to actually declare things that needed, many Yemenis believe, needed parliamentary support, which was a virtual dictatorship for the, 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 the period of 2012-2014. He started to initiate agreements with the World Bank. He joined, he forced Yemen into the WTO regime. He started making agreements with the IMF, which uh, started to sequester large amounts of Yemen's uh, state assets for open market uh, purchase. Uh, he, so he's basically integrating Yemen in ways that most Yemenis were clearly not supportive of. And that led to ultimately a coalition of actors joining in 2014, removing him from formally from power. He resigns and there is no official government between late 2014 and this March 2015 intervention. There was an attempt uh, by a, a representative of the United Nations to bring all these parties together. But again, the Obama administration insisted on not allowing some of the major actors, Southern so-called Southern separatists, those who wanted to reenact the, the, the Southern Yemeni state that had been independent from Britain 67 until unifying in 1990. Uh, so there was a significant group of southern Yemenis who wanted to have a, an independent, separate state. In the north, we have a, a large coalition that extends across the so-called sectarian grounds uh, or differences that are often uh, uh, highlighted in Western media. I don't know how it is in India, but sectarianism is one of those uh, classic uh, tools of uh, explaining events that it's because Sunni and Shia despise each other that there is no stability, which is not the case at all. So there was this broad coalition of support coming uh, from and, and somehow had gravitated around these charismatic figures that are often associated with an individual family named Houthi. Um, it, it is not a fanatical uh, 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 Shia movement around this family. However, this is how Western media and academics refer to this broad coalition of actors who are geographically, religiously, class at various class levels uh, cut across throughout Yemeni society. So it's, it's a broad coalition that had collectively said enough is enough with this imposition of American uh, interim government 
who was selling off Yemeni assets left and right without any parliamentary um, uh, debates about this, as there was no parliament um, it, at the time. They insisted that we will stop this process until we have elections. All these parties are allowed to participate in the negotiations, which again, the Americans had vetoed certain parties, the Southern separatists, as well as the so-called Ansar Allah or the Houthis that they often referred to, which again, constitute a very broad segment of Yemeni society, automatically not allowed to participate in the negotiations that were supposed to find uh, an agreement to agree upon a constitution, to agree upon then uh, formal elections, who could participate in the elections, and then they could have a parliament and then elect um, uh, a, a president who could somehow serve as an intermediary in this constitutional system. So the Americans and their allies were imposing all kinds of conditions on Yemenis that most Yemenis did not support. And there was no other means for them because of this imposition of an interim government who seemed to have UN, EU, American support to basically make these arbitrary executive decrees about how Yemen's economy is going to be parceled out and, and how Yemen is going to be integrated into the global economy via neoliberal globalization kinds of mechanisms that the IMF is very famous for. Um, pushing on countries. Yemen sovereignty had been surrendered and uh, Yemenis were in the process of bringing that back. And that's in March 2015 when the, um, uh, on the pretext of imposing or bringing back the legitimate government under this interim Hadi, uh, who was again, who even formally signed his resignation in early 2015, they uh, re resurrected him as a figure who represents the official government. And if he's not reinstated into power, then uh, there would be an international coalition to enforce uh, this process. Uh, and that, what, that basically was the underlying uh, pretext for uh, a, a joint military actions uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE as the three primary, uh, let's say, uh, suppliers of manpower, of weaponry, with the British and Americans providing logistical support and the diplomatic cover that extended to even the Security Council, uh, including China and Russia, uh, giving uh, the, uh, this coalition a stamp of approval in terms of international laws concerned. But since March 2015, it's been a daily uh, series of um, uh, uh, ter terrible, uh, cynical use of air power uh, with the, a combination of arming uh, willing militias on the ground, Yemeni, particularly uh, uh, religious, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Muslim uh, constituencies, Takfiri groups, uh, 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 Al-Qaeda-type uh, operations uh, um, who had long been used as assets in the wars against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan or in these other conflicts that uh, uh, American uh, special forces had trained Syria and Libya, they were sent back to Yemen to uh, wage this campaign against the, uh, a, a real resistance to this demand that Yemen surrender to this Hadi government that the Americans deemed to be the only legitimate government until we have actual elections.
And so using air power, using um, uh, hundreds, uh, hundreds of well-trained special forces coming from the United States, Australia, mostly as mercenaries, uh, working on the, uh, in, in the framework of Saudi, UAE, or Qatari militaries, with a broader coalition uh, symbolically providing a plane or two. Morocco had a, a, one of its airplanes shot down early in this 2015 period. Uh, Sudan has provided uh, the, the bulk of the manpower for this war since 2015. Chad um, um, and other um, uh, de facto mercenary uh, for, uh, units have been recruited, trained, and sent to fight since 2015 against this broad coalition of Yemenis who are now geographically been pushed and are identifiable more or less along the confines of the old north-south divide of North Yemen versus South Yemen. If you look at an old map before 1990. And um, this war has been ongoing. Uh, Northern Yemen, its topography is, it basically makes it impossible to invade it with land forces. So this is a campaign of uh, using uh, the air superiority. There is in fact no way for Northern Yemenis to defend themselves. They have no anti-aircraft weapons that can reach so high up to those advanced F-16, F-15, F-35s that the Saudis, uh, UAE and Qatar no longer does that, but UAE and, and Saudis are using their uh, air power to drop ordinances on populations the initial uh, air campaign that was, again, the war was not anticipated to, exast, to uh, last longer than several weeks. They assumed that overwhelming air power, a sudden invasion of, of sophisticated, well-trained troops would immediately remove any resistance. They didn't realize the extent of the coalition that had been created prior to the war. And then the moment this war started in 2015, Yemenis across the board joined in large numbers, including significant amounts of the military itself, which was the largest military before this war in Arabia, well-trained forces. Uh, they even had ballistic missiles and had certainly engineers who knew how to make ballistic missiles. And we have seen, it, while it has taken some time, these, these uh, engineering capabilities, the military that Yemen had always had, um, has now adapted and has been able to produce its own uh, uh, weaponry, whether it be crude uh, drones or even, let's say, cruder ballistic missiles that have been used uh, for the last three or four years to actually enter in airspace of Saudi Arabia and UAE and actually make significant damage to uh, targets in those countries. Uh, so this is a rather long answer to what how this war started. Uh, it starts in 2015. It's been continuing on till today with the primary um, uh, battlefronts being somewhat in, in stagnation. Uh, there's, it's very difficult to make territorial advances. But recently, uh, the northern, uh, let, let, we will call it Ansar Allah, or the northern forces in this interview uh, for moving forward to distinguish from the coalition that uh, supposedly is trying to impose and return to power the legitimate government. Uh, the Northern forces have made recently some 
territorial expansion, um, successfully taking over areas that are increasingly getting close to the key economic assets that Yemen possesses at this time, which are the oil and gas fields of central uh, Yemen in a province called Marib and Shabwa. And so the recent um, uh, ratcheting up of uh, International attention to Yemen is largely because of these dramatic recent uh, military victories that the Northern Alliance has secured. And that's where we're basically at, with the majority of the uh, uh, people living in Yemen under siege in Northern Yemen. Some 20 to 23 million are currently for the last seven years now. It's a long war. Um, have no access to the outside world. Uh, they've uh, been trying to produce enough food for themselves, but their fields are bombed with cluster weapons, cynical use of uh, very destructive bombs to take out bridges, water uh, uh, distribution systems that had been are famous in Yemen for thousands of years, able to harness the, the annual monsoons to distribute water for these very rich fields. But it's been very difficult for them to um, feed themselves there's been uh, periodic outbreaks of cholera, other uh, transmittable diseases that should have been addressed by a Ministry of Health that can't function. Uh, transportation is basically impossible other than small jeeps. So Yemen has, uh, northern Yemen, a very mountainous country, on, on better terms could have um, survived uh, the siege, but the cynical use of air power to first and foremost destroy civilian infrastructure has been the policy from day one, hoping to use economic warfare, the suffering of civilians to, to undermine the, um, the ability of this Northern Alliance to actually function as a military force as well as a government. And re remarkably, these people in the North have been able to somehow survive militarily, somehow maintain some kind of government, a system that still distributes uh, resources to hungry people, medicines, tries to rebuild infrastructure. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a remarkable story on, in its own right, uh, but it's a, a, a horrible uh, example of how cynical the powerful in the world um, will be willing to use the suffering of people to try to create conditions on the ground to have their interests served when clearly Yemenis do not want to serve those interests. So in your book, you write about the horrific double-tap bombing strike on a, on a funeral, right? Mm. So why are civilians being targeted? Isn't that war crime? These are war crimes. Uh, these were yes. specifically uh, addressed in the legal codes that you do not attack civilians. But as I mentioned, uh, the resilience, the, the victory that was anticipated, they anticipated a victory in two to three weeks at most. Uh, they didn't uh, consider the capacity of, of, of what seemed to be a ragtag in their own discourse, in their own propaganda. These are just uh, militias who are living in the mountains. They're uh, primitive. Uh, they don't have any organization. So they, they, their own propaganda, their own way of demeaning their, um, their uh, rivals uh, has undermined their ability to think strategically and think realistically. Now, there were, probably were experts who understood uh, that this could be a very long uh, conflict, 
But there are always uh, activer, actors who actually see extended conflict as a positive. It's profitable, right? It, it, it creates new kinds of dependencies. It creates new kinds of economies of scale. Uh, and we've, we've been looking at this for a long time now, that uh, disaster capitalism is indeed a phenomenon where there's a whole new subsect of Wall Street industry that what makes and uh, fi financing that actually profits from war, profits from refugees, profits from infrastructure destruction, uh, profits from the, 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 the heightened demand and the price uh, uh, rises of certain commodities in these conflict areas. It also makes it very easy then to extract, uh, especially gas and oil, in these conflict zones. So if you can scatter and undermine uh, the confidence that people have with the side that they're on, in this case, northern Yemen, 20 to 23 million people, vast majority of Yemenis who live in these areas, under the governance and the protection of this northern alliance, the ones resisting the Americans in Saudi Arabia, and Qatar and UAE, if you can say, if you can basically make their lives miserable, the idea is that that will undermine their confidence. They will then take up arms or they will do what uh, others have done in Syria and elsewhere. They will leave and they will ruin the capacity of the government that is resisting the targeted governments for this war uh, to make it impossible for them to rule. But the, again, the resilience of the people, um, uh, whether they have a chance to actually leave is another thing, but uh, they, are, they have remained very, very attached to this resistance. Um, the, the, the economic suffering, uh, the first couple of weeks of the war, uh, they were using double taps, very cynically, knowing very well that uh, people will go and you attack an area um, you blow up a car, for instance, they know that other people will come and try to help people who are injured by this or take out the fire. So there'll actually be a larger group of people now uh, moving towards this targeted area. And then, then they bomb again because they want to maximize the suffering. They want to maximize the terror. This is a kind of terrorism that is state-sponsored. It's a form of a state terrorism to undermine the psychological um, uh, emotional links that those who are resisting with arms and those who are supporting them in some um, in some variation uh, on the ground and i've I, you, since you mentioned the double tap technique this is in fact a technique that was only recently uh, in the 1990s uh, mastered by the americans and they did their first double tap in fact was in yemen when they were supposedly going after these takfiri uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups, where they were in fact going after uh, Ali Abdullah Salah's biggest enemies. You had the their former ally Ali Abdullah Salah saying, "We, I have a problem with certain uh, groups here in this part of Yemen. We will say that we're attacking Al Qaeda forces who were behind 9/11, and uh, it was under uh, uh, the Obama administration, in fact, that they started to use this double tap te technique." Uh, which again is a, it's a war crime. It's a very cynical understanding of how societies work. That logically, you know, that people will go and help people who have been attacked, whose legs are severed from their bodies, who are uh, heavily burned. You're going to have ambulance coming to help these people. 
And probably one of the biggest crimes is something that I start my book out with, is the uh, attack on the funeral of a very prominent soldier of northern Yemen resistance. And dignitaries from all over North Yemen came. And so they really wanted to maximize the kill of very important, prominent Yemenis. And so they attacked the funeral. And, um, and then they waited some 10 minutes and they, had, uh, they used uh, uh, incendiary bombs for the second round because they knew that people would rush to try to take care of the people who were in this building that had been destroyed by the bomb. And then they even went a third time as there would be a, a second wave of people trying to help the, the, the heavily burnt people who came to second, the, the, the initial stage of trying to help the injured. And this has been going on until today, still use these tactics. And uh, uh, they sometimes attack uh, uh, factories. If factory, they, in the first year, attacked much of the food processing industries of Yemen, North Yemen. Uh, they attacked farms again. They knew where the, uh, the, the where they were producing milk. They knew where the chicken farms were, so they took out all those assets. Uh, they uh, occasionally attacked schools, which got international attention and condemnation from usual suspects in the larger world, with to no effect, however. Right? We still have uh, these atrocities taking place. And more recently, just after this last wave of uh, attacks by the Northern Alliance using their ballistic missiles to just, again, remind Abu Dhabi's government that you have... Uh, you're continuously um, uh, entering in and expanding your war in against our society that there will be consequences for your economy. We can up upset your economy if you continue to fight this war. So the initial, uh, let's say, Western now media paying attention again, the initial wave of retaliation from uh, Saudi forces led to the destruction of a holding prison uh, in northern Yemen, uh, which killed, we don't know, between 80 to 140 people who were in this holding bin. And most of those people were actually migrants coming from the Horn of Africa, seeking way to get into the Saudi economy to find work. So, again, these are all sites that are very well known. Uh, uh, one doesn't just blindly drop bombs. These are all very sophisticated weapons that the Saudis and the UAE are using on Yemen now. So they, they have these precision bombs. They know where these bombs are going, and they know what they're hitting. And uh, it is to terrorize people. It's to make people feel that they have no hope, that there's no way out of this. We just to somehow now take measures into our own hands, let us go and rise up against this northern alliance. But it's just not happened. Um, they have constantly tried to undermine this, the, the civil, civilian um, foundations of this resistance to the coalition, and they have failed to do so. Because people, again, f understand what, what, what are the consequences of uh, who are the instigators of this conflict. This is a, something that goes back many generations now already. And Yemenis prove to be quite sophisticated in understanding their place in the world and who are their real enemies. And this is yet another example of just uh, the thinking of the outside world, uh, especially amongst so-called experts. Uh, they get trapped by their logic and the language that they use to describe certain so-called global South peoples. And they, they begin to now create uh, this uh, uh, image of inferiority, 
of lack of sophistication, that you can tap into their cultural distinctiveness and, 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 and use their cultures against them. And it doesn't prove that way in many, many occasions. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this will be, if this war ever ends in the way that uh, is just, will become an, 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 one of those classic models of indigenous resistance to global capitalist imperialism. Um, as we saw in the case of Algeria or Kenya or parts of South, South Asia in the past, this will be, I think, a, a textbook example of, of, uh, of, of a, uh, a, an indigenous resistance to global forces. So this is a pattern we see all the time. It's, it's something you saw in Turkey in the 1920s when they tried to parcel out parts of Turkey and give, it, give them to various uh, winning powers of the, of the First World War. We see that in Africa as well. They've drawn these arbitrary lines on the map, divided communities, and that's what's causing civil wars. So is that the same sort of uh, technique that's being used in Yemen? I mean, I remember Yemen used to be divided into two, two countries. So what was the, uh, the, the cause for that? Who divided Yemen? And is that one of the reasons why this conflict is going on? Uh, no, uh, Yemen as a concept, as a geography, is referred to as Yemen, uh, to the right of Mecca, Medina. Um, and it has long been a part of the global economy, much more oriented towards the Indian Ocean world. Um, for thousands of years, there's been trade links between extending all the way from Malaysia through India to Southern Arabia to East Africa. Uh, and it was never holistically administered by any um, government uh, regime. Um, it, it, again, the topography makes it very difficult to actually have a formal, even in the 21st century, have a formal um, single administrative uh, uh, set of institutions that could draw taxes and organize people and force them to recognize a single authority. Uh, there, there were, uh, and Yemenis still persist in having this skill of negotiation, of power sharing, of finding common interests, uh, because, you, I'm so sorry, it was my keyboard. Um, uh, because of the topography, you have communities that live uh, very much in distinctive spaces that, um, however, do require this assistance of others who are, let's say, downstream or down, down the roads in order to get their products to market elsewhere. And so there has been, again, thousands of years of being able to communicate, to discuss and understand each other's interests and come to an agreement and shake a hand. This is how the world worked. This is how the whole Indian Ocean's world's global economic system worked until the European imperialists came and wanted to monopolize and dictate through law and through principles and through you know, economic theory, um, that this is how the world should work and not uh, this seemingly arbitrary, seemingly uh, chaotic system that existed before. And so the modern spaces that we begin to call Yemen from the, let's say, the middle of the 19th century onwards are areas that become integrated into this emerging global capitalist system. One in which the British East India Company which is eager to try to secure links to India and to its assets in the subcontinent, um, will establish commercial um, alliances with various ruling communities along the coast of the Gulf. So 
they make an agreement in Ras al Khaimah, they make an agreement in Qatar, in Bahrain, in Oman, and similarly in Aden, in the, the, a port that was ruled by and would continue to be ruled by this uh, series of families, but in alliance with British East India Company in the 1830s. And this is a precisely the time Ottoman Empire's primary, let's say, asset in the region under Muhammad Ali in Egypt is going to start to integrate Sudan, much of the Red Sea coastline, into this of Egypt, greater Egypt's uh, uh, interest and integrate that part of the economy uh, of the Red Sea and Western Arabia into uh, the Ottoman and Mediterranean worlds. And so it then becomes a, a, a very much how Africa was divided up at some point in the 1870s, 1880s. Uh, capitalist interests who invested in colonization of trading ports, making diplomatic alliances with uh, coastal trading partners, if you will, who were indigenous, uh, became increasingly uh, uh, confident that they could actually extend their uh, influence into the hinterland. So in the case of uh, British East India Company, which hands over the day-to-day -day costs of its exploitative enterprises in India to the British crown in the 1850s, where the British taxpayers are now going to be paying for the heavy um, costs of extracting wealth from India, um, creating conditions on the ground that will allow for them to profit from this relationship. Uh, so as the British crown now establishing in Bombay its second head, if you will, um, Aden is going to be integrated into the administrative scheme in Bombay. And in the process, uh, the British are going to reach out and try to forge similar kinds of economic political relations with other leading families and establish what they would end up calling sultanates or emirates. So emirs whom they recognized, they would give them uh, uniforms, they would give them little medals, sometimes some weapons, allow them to take over the, and, and become uh, surrogates for these larger operations. And the same th process starts to begin in the 1830s, 1840s, and ultimately by 1872, the Ottoman Empire are able to make similar kinds of arrangements in this northern Yemen, which is these amazing mountain, mountainous areas with a coastal plain under what is southwest Arabia. If you were to look at a map, it's called Tihama. So these areas became the sphere of influence of the Ottoman Empire. Across the Red Sea, Italian companies, Swiss companies, uh, the French companies and others would do similar things. So Masawa, for instance, the Itali an Italian company from Bologna would come make an agreement and establish a small colony and become now part of the regional economy in the Red Sea from what is today Eritrea, the French in Djibouti, the British in Somaliland, et cetera, et cetera. And so in time, by the 1880s, the Europeans are going to create a system now that, look, we're going to start fighting each other over these assets because some of these uh, uh, coastal areas that we have secured arrangements with actually require to have uh, and control the links to the hinterlands. That's where much of the economic activity is coming from. We want to control where the coffee is coming from. We want to control where the timber is coming from for the 
increasing demand for forest products, et cetera, for wheat, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be now a, an expansionist process by which we don't want to pay the middleman here on, on the coast. We don't want to pay pr a profitable um, uh, amounts of exchange with rulers, let's say the Ethiopian king in the highlands or in, uh, or in Sudan or in Yemen. Let's now expand our capacities to actually control the source, the transport process, and then the distribution and the marketing and entering into the market in Europe. So full-scale monopoly of international trade is an objective now from the mid-1890s, 1890s onwards. And the Europeans are brought together, these European powers who are working on, on behalf of their corporate um, uh, interests who are the ones profiting from trade with Africa, with the Indian Ocean. And they basically come to some kind of a, arrangement where they will divide up Africa, where you begin to see these arbitrary lines now. that They don't even know the topography of Africa. Much of Central Africa is uh, integrated into an Indian Ocean economy, uh, where in the highlands of Rwanda, there are Arab traders who are bringing the ivory, the gold, the human labor to the coast to then be sold in the larger markets. Europeans want to control that. They want to throw out the, uh, the ones who are prior to them profiting most from integrating Africa's real uh, economy, the, the raw materials coming from Africa. And a similar processes at play in Southern Arabia between the Ottomans and the British. It's much more cost effective for us as civilized empires to, as a gentleman, come to an agreement. Let's divide up these territories. Now, both sides are rivals with each other. They, uh, there are, of course, local players who are going to exploit this sensitivity to stability because you don't make money when uh, supply chains are broken or disrupted. And so you have local players who may be rivals with the ones that the Ottomans or the British had formally signed an agreement with. I'm going to make the, this local's life miserable. I'm going to say to the British and the Ottomans and the Italians and the French who are also looking into this lucrative trading circle in South, Southwest Arabia that I can dictate when coffee flows from the, from the hills down to the coast. I can disrupt trade. I can bring my armed men out. And sometimes I would get weapons from Italian uh, suppliers. The French are going to provide weapons to local players. And this is a, a, a rather uh, obvious, I think, but some rarely told in these terms story about how in British, French, Italian, even eventually American empires are actually built. It's with the collaboration and the very complicated internal politics taking place, whether it's in Uttar Pradesh or Kerala or in our case, Southwest Arabia. And uh, ultimately on the maps of empires, they sit there with a geographic space and they draw lines. That does not necessarily mean, however, on the ground, in reality, day to day, there's actual borders, one, or that the people themselves respect those borders. At certain points of time, however, these powers in Europe are going to say we need to actually uh, strengthen these borders because one of security, 
is also a means of taxation. We can actually tax things that are imported and tax things that are exported from our zones of influence and control. And here also they would use local intermediaries uh, to actually do the day-to-day -day functioning of administering these blocks of territories that are on maps. So Yemen comes then a, a quite distinctive territory because of this process from the 1870s until World War I. And so what becomes known as North Yemen had been secured by the Ottomans through their various means of negotiations with locals, as well as playing the larger great empire's game of putting on maps lines that supposedly uh, designate uh, who has a sphere of influence and supposedly the rights to tax in certain areas and not others. And that basically makes North Yemen vis-a-vis South Yemen, which is a far larger territory, if you look on the map, but inhabited by far less people. Uh, it's a not a very productive land. It's largely desert. Um, it's along the coastal areas, these smaller fishing vill villages or towns that have seasonal trade that comes from Daos, from the Indian Ocean, increasingly now monopolized by British or German ships before World War I. After World War I, it will be British and American ships that will now dominate the supply of goods and services. What is extracted from Southern Arabia is determined by British, French, American corporate interests. They are their market, right? They, they become the market, not buyers in Kerala, not buyers in Dar es Salaam or in Zanzibar, as it was maybe 30 years earlier. So the 20th century is really the beginning of making Yemen what it is as a territory. It also it's making its economy in many ways. And it's in there, thereby the people who live in these political economies have to make the adjustment. And in South Yemen, that extends to actually the British successfully creating nine distinctive territories that would be ruled by distinctive families, very much to what we have today in the United Arab Emirates, what was called the Trucial States prior to 1971. The Trucial States was extended from Qatar, Bahrain, all the way down to Ras al-Khaimah and Fujairah. Uh, these were all ruled by individual families that the British had negotiated and figured out a meaningful, productive, profitable relationship that was mutually beneficial. The same thing that the British had, did, had done to Southern Arabia, uh, from extending from Oman all the way to the Bab al-Mandab, where um, it's basically the border between South Yemen and North Yemen. And North Yemen being um, a, a different legal space by the end of World War I, had the, the Ottomans leaving, was the gap was filled by an old dynasty, a Mutawakil dynasty uh, that was primarily based in the north, in the mountains of the north. Um, uh, by 1905, they had elected a new leader named Yahya, so Imam Yahya, who had worked within this a scheme of competing empires, com competing commercial interests, and was able to provide in the end of 1918, 1919, the only reasonable, uh, let's say, single administrative, uh, someone who had the capacity to administer the, the various distinctive uh, commercial, political, uh, social uh, 
constituencies that were created in this formerly identified as Ottoman North Yemen. And so through violence, through very great political skill, by 1918, when the rest of the Ottoman Empire is being divided up, as agreed in Sykes-Picot in 1916, as agreed then later on after the Mudros Agreement in 1918 between the Greeks and the Italians and the French and the British, there would be a lot of violence in that part of the world. The British had Al Saud family in what becomes Saudi Arabia expanding at, at British to help the British consolidate control of the Gulf, consolidate control of Western Arabia. They, there was one pocket of independence, and this was North Yemen under this imam. And he uh, uh, formerly was probably the only um, sovereign Muslim ruler at the uh, by end of World War I that existed. There would be the Sauds, but who were, however, very much uh, dependent on first British support and then later Rockefeller's oil companies that would come and make uh, America's kingdom out of what becomes Saudi Arabia. Uh, and Saudi Arabia would territorially expand as a result, take over Mecca and Medina in the 1920s, 1925 to 26, and then expand southwards in the southwest to actually take large parts of Yemen in 1934, which will be part of one of the reasons why we have conflict between specifically Saudi Arabia and Yemen since the 1930s. It's the annexation of a large part of culturally what is considered northern Yemen, um, uh, inhabited mostly by Ismaili Shia, uh, uh, who again have long links not to the north. They were trading with Mecca Medina, but certainly not to areas that were part of Saud influence, which is in the eastern part of Arabia. And this would become one of the key areas in which uh, the whole process of defining territories and claims of sovereignty became an enduring problem in uh, northern Yemen as much as the British and Imam Yahya come to a very stubborn agreement that there would be a defined boundary between what constitutes north Yemen and British-influenced southern Yemen until 1967 under direct British administration. Um, with its uh, support coming from local uh, sultans that they had signed agreements with. North Yemen was independent. And while British were trying to always influence and shape and get rid of this imamate, this family that was ruling uh, the entirety of northern Yemen, very, very resistant to capitalist interests, he often articulated explicitly in those terms anti-capitalist kinds of references, he was very hostile to British con uh, control of uh, Jerusalem, hostile to Zionist settlements. He was the first sovereign to actually condemn the creation of the State of Israel in 1947. It's a very interesting side of history. He was the first uh, sovereign to sign an agreement with the early Soviet Union. So um, it, 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 uh, there is still a lot to say about what is going on in the Southwest Arabia where you have supposedly a backward uh, uh, king or ruler who, who belongs in the medieval times and supposedly ruling uh, uh, with religious authority is actually someone who is quite sophisticated in a sophisticated way reading how the world has changed from before World War I 
to after World War One. Unfortunately for his his coalition, they could not sustain protection for their north uh, western territories, the Asir, which today is Najran and Jizan uh, port, which is the border between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And this is the primary area where the war is being fought right now. It was, um, and there's a reason why this area is um, so contentious and has long been a source of tension and violence between Saudi Arabia and North Yemen. It is, and it goes to the border, the borderlands. And this is something that I do cover in my chapter two of destroying Yemen. I, ex I cover much more extensively in a book in 2010 called Chaos in Yemen. And it's about the uh, fact that in 1934, when uh, Saudi Arabia de facto uh, annexes a, a good portion of northern Yemen, uh, they could never come to a, a diplomatic arrangement that they would actually identify along a, a map what actually constituted Saudi areas of influence and Imam Yahya's northern areas of influence. And with the exception of a border that from the, Indian, from the Red Sea to about 50 kilometers high in the mountains, that was more or less agreed upon as an area of, dis of distinction for military purposes and oil exploration. Uh, these were all things that were demanded by Rockefeller and BP early on in the 1940s, 1930s and 40s. We need to know who has sovereignty over this space. But the areas extended deep into all the way what today, if you look on the map, all the way to uh, Oman, where there's a border, shared border between Saudi Arabia, Oman, and southern Yemen. This was all unmarked territory. This was never agreed upon. And one of the reasons why was because the people who lived on both sides of these borders still had the ability to cause a lot of trouble if their lives were dramatically changed. And for Saudi Arabia, in the end, their interest was really not to uh, colonize this area just yet. They wanted to have some stability. This was a very rich area for uh, agriculture, a lot of water um, that still came there. And uh, this is something that they wanted to serve as a buffer to keep northern Yemen from entering into the politics of Mecca, Medina, which was a very contentious space for the Saud family, who in coming in 1924, 25, 26 to Mecca, Medina, they desecrate the family of Muhammad's uh, sites of where people, when they would go to pilgrimage, they would also pay respect to the Prophet's families. This was something that was all wiped out because King Hussein, who ruled, uh, uh, who had supposedly made an alliance with the British in 1916 to send his sons, uh, Faisal and Abdullah, to, to fight the Ottomans, he had believed that he had been promised to become the caliph of all Muslims. If not, then the ruler of all Arabs in a pan-Arab state, something that the British had no real interest in uh, giving uh, this power to in the first place, even though Lawrence, the famous Lawrence of Arabia, had promised Hussein this. So Hussein was sulking and um, sometimes very hostile situation in, until he was overthrown and replaced by the Sauds. Uh, with British and uh, weapons and funding and logistical support. And so Saudi Arabia, thanks to the British, are expanding at the expense of what becomes Iraq, Jordan, 
There was a whole a region between Iraq, Jordan, and Syria ruled by the Rashidi family who had been pro-Ottoman and very hostile to the British, just like in northern Yemen. They were wiped out by the uh, Wahhabi Muslim Brotherhood alliance that Saud had actually put together with British help. Saudi takes over the eastern coastline, what, what is between Qatar and Bahrain and, uh, and, and Kuwait, where most of the oil is found these days for Aramco. This was something that the, especially the Americans would facilitate with their geologists coming from Rockefeller Oil, the Seven Sisters. Uh, um, funny enough, some of those geologists had started their careers in Arabia in northern Yemen, and the Imam became increasingly suspicious that they're up to no good taking samples from these valleys where no one lives. And they were promised that they would be digging wells for water. And they were doing clearly something else. So Imam Yahya said, out you go. We don't, we don't trust you. So these uh, guy, his name was Twitchell. Was, uh, one, uh, he was the first geologist who really discovered and helped create Aramco in Saudi Arabia. He had initially been Export, uh, um, deported from northern Yemen. So that gives you a sense of the political um, uh, orientations, very distinctive in northern Yemen vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the outside world and the Saud family, which becomes a very strong um, and important extension of British American imperialism from the 1920s onwards. Uh, and we'll use Takfiri Wahhabism when necessary to destroy the cultural institutions that sometimes extended for a thousand years uh, in, in, for instance, Mecca, Medina, to wipe out any reference to the Prophet's family, to wipe out the legitimacy of people who were related to the Prophet. And this extended also to the Imam of Northern Yemen, who was indeed um, through uh, a um, uh, proven chain of connection was related to uh, the Prophet Muhammad through one of his um, wives. So uh, this, these are, this is a whole old system of politics, cultural exchange, and economics that is now being dismantled by these imperialist enterprises, just like they did in Southern Asia, in Southeast Asia, in many parts of Africa. And they would use these intermediaries as tools. And this system in, in Yemen extended until the 1960s when the peoples of southern Yemen had already embraced uh, the revolutionary esprit that had been um, bursting out anti-colonialism in Africa and many parts of Asia had infiltrated because of the connections that South Yemen had to the larger world. You had port workers, people on ships bringing back ideas and news of what was happening in the larger world. In northern Yemen, um, it had this constant struggle of trying to support their brothers and sisters in British-controlled southern Yemen. Northern Yemen, in many ways, got into bed with George Habash, for instance. In 1955, 56, 57, many Palestinians were trained in northern Yemen. Again, this is all under the imam, this time the son of Imam Yahya, a man named Imam Ahmed. Uh, Imam Yahya died in 1948 and then was succeeded by his son, Ahmed. And he continued on this resistance to uh, global capitalist imperialism to the extent of even supporting so-called Marxist 
movements that were um, uh, allowed to train and then infiltrate into British-controlled Aden uh, up until 1961. Uh, Imam Ahmed and his um, allies that again extended beyond being simply uh, Zaidi Shia, but also uh, Sunnis and, and others who were uh, secular-minded uh, to the extreme, uh, they were one of the major promoters of pan-Arabism and this whole uh, movement of non-alignment, the non-alignment movement, which is a synonymous with uh, um, Gamal Abdel Nasser these days, uh, who was the figurehead who was sent from Cairo to go to uh, uh, Bandung in 1955 to form this alliance with Nehru and with Sukarno and, and, uh, and others. Uh, in fact, Part of that coalition in the Middle East was from this imamate in northern Yemen, which remained hostile to the creation of Israel. It's just another colonialist project in their narrative. They were, however, now a member of the United Nations. They did participate in international organizations. And one of their uh, main objectives was to form alliances with the, the progressive parts of the, uh, the Middle East and the Islamic world that Islam was still a progressive force. It was not necessarily one that was conservative, that would suppress anti-capitalist uh, activism, as we saw in Saudi Arabia, that there really was this um, cohabitation, if you will, that in many ways Nasser unfortunately would upset uh, by his hostility to not only the Communist Party in Egypt, but also to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, but here, at the same time, he's making overtures to strong, independent Arab states, Syria, Iraq, and North Yemen. And they were going to form a coalition, what became known as this United Arab Republic project, which in 1958, Iraq, because of political conditions on the ground, um, they separated themselves. North Yemen was not willing to give sovereignty to Egypt, but they were in a military alliance. So from 1955 until 1961, this so-called conservative medieval empire, uh, 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 kingdom of North Yemen is making political alliances, military alliances with the free officers movement in Egypt, with these now progressive uh, Syrian nationalists who also become Ba'athist activists, pan-Arabist activists in Syria, and even with Iraq. And, and this, this all breaks down uh, uh, and becomes a very obvious collective uh, threat to various interested parties, especially in the United States. Under Eisenhower and then Kennedy, they successfully, and I write about this in the book, chapter four, they successfully recruit Nasser and pull him out of this uh, very dangerous precedent of a United Arab Republic that had been established in 58, 59. Syria abandons the whole project already by 1960-61. Uh, they are not happy being basically uh, uh, puppets of the Nasser regime. Uh, Imam um, Ahmed is also distinguished himself from um, Nasser. Uh, and by 1962, no longer in alliance with Syria, Egypt gets involved in the domestic politics of North Yemen. They stage a coup with Imam Ahmed dead. His son was to succeed. Uh, they stage a, a so-called progressive coup and initiate a process of creating a republic in northern Yemen, which 
uh, would have full-scale support and an actual invasion. Upwards of 70,000 Egyptian troops will eventually establish control of the cities of northern Yemen, leaving the countryside, very much like Algeria with the French, um, who are, would, would lose Algeria in a similar fashion, control the cities but not control the countryside, and fight this horrible war that would last from 62 until 68, the Egyptians leave, and the war lasts for another two years for northern Yemen. And this was a very cynical um, process of using conflicting uh, ambitions. Who is going to lead the pan-Arab uh, movement? Who's going to lead the Arab world? Is it going to gravitate towards the global south, making this non-alignment uh, gesture, uh, alliance, or is it going to go towards the Soviet Union? towards China. And what's so fascinating about Northern Yemen, under the Imam Ahmed, again, making these progressive alliances with progressive regimes in, in, in Egypt with, and Syria and Iraq, making these gestures support radical elements like George Habash's movement to help fight the British in Aden. They're also allowing uh, the, the Soviets and Maoist China to come and, and bring uh, resources to Yemen to help build infrastructure. Some of these incredible highways that link the coast, the west coast of, of North Yemen with the highlands to Sana'a or to Ta'ez, the big cities in, in the highlands, were built by Soviet Chinese engineers. But he had this, he understood how this world worked. He even invited the Americans to bring the development of funds that they were offering to try to coax him out of this so-called dangerous uh, movement towards uh, communist uh, China or to Soviet Union. And uh, once again, he realized that they cannot trust the Americans who were already busy spying and dragging their feet and they were demanding profitable arrangements where they can bring their own labor, not allow Yemenis to labor on their projects, out you go. Chinese are going to train our engineers. They're going to actually help us build our own infrastructure, as did the Soviets, as did the Swedes, by the way. Very interesting stuff. Sweden, a progressive country in those days that did not want to play the Cold War, sent down and offered their, uh, their best pilots to work and run the, the airlines of North Yemen in the mid-1950s to this war that Egypt basically invades and occupies northern Yemen in 1962 to 68. So this, this is a very uh, long-winded st uh, story of the, uh, let's say, the first three quarters of the 20th century, that Yemen, North Yemen is very much implicated in the struggle against global imperialism, capitalist imperialism, uh, on, based on principles that are articulated in ways that are very similar if you were to listen to leftist Marxist-trained activists elsewhere in the world. Uh, and th this is put to a stop with a, as I demonstrate by looking at American archives, looking at American uh, relationships to uh, Egypt that is established uh, the year before under Kennedy, uh, Nasser begins to start servicing in some unanticipated ways the interest of uh, the Americans under Kennedy, who had this vision of integrating large parts of the Gulf South America will be the savior of those anti-colonialist movements, that we, we are sympathetic to Africa going independent, and then trying to control that process, to assure that Congo doesn't go, right, uh, doesn't go 
uh, independent of the global economic forces that demand that we have access to your uranium in Katanga, right? And uh, it's it's under Kennedy that, that this is really uh, this cynical um, attempt to exploit the uh, anti-colonialism that's happening, to co-opt the anti-colonialism, to make sure that when these zones go independent, they don't go really independent and um, and pursue independently development of their own societies, right? This this um, uh, these economic uh, strategies that were uh, developed in the 50s and 60s, where we can um, protect our own e uh, industries, we can uh, actually produce our own cars and televisions, we have the natural resources. Why should we just send out raw materials and import back finished products, which is a huge drain on our national economies. So Kennedy uh, initiated this process of trying to stop that from happening. And Nasser, I argue in the book, is one of those principal allies in the Middle East. And he will be the enforcer of assuring that North Yemen is now going to be integrated into that global economy controlled by North Atlantic interests, not something that could be akin to what India did, or making a kind of a balanced relationship with China, with Soviet Union, with the West or even going directly into the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. Because it became clear southern Yemen was going that direction. The British couldn't control the rebellion that was taking place in many of its small pockets. Very difficult to police vast territories where you have small villages who are very mobile, uh, very difficult to control. And again, until 1961-62, supported by northern Yemen. Nasser and his campaign changes the dynamics and changes the discourse about how we understand these dynamics moving forward. Becomes the precursor and the, the let's say, the foundations of what Malcolm Kerr would ultimately call the Arab Cold War, which supposedly pitted conservative monarchies or, or those who have strong, uh, let's say, affinities uh, as Muslim states, explicitly Muslim states, versus these progressive secular um, countries that were advocating for secular society, uh, pan-Arabist, Ba'athist, Nasserist kind of types that were becoming quite popular uh, as increasing people are able to travel and interact and study um, and, they, and they go to university. The first generation of university-educated say, um, um, petite bourgeois uh, types are going to now embrace Marxism, embrace the critiques of uh, European capitalist imperialism, and see in Ba'athist party, see in Nasser, uh, a model for a future in which the Arab world can unite, keep their resources uh, at home, do what other areas of the world were trying to do as well in this crucial period of the 60s and 70s. And unfortunately, that unleashed all kinds of cynical forces onto northern Yemen, southern Yemen, that led to constant war, hundreds of thousands of deaths, starvation, and that shaped uh, the subsequent generation in, in these now two distinctive areas that are called Yemen, that have a very loose uh, uh, historical links to each other. They're often they're very distinctive societies that 
now uh, living under the British until 67, and now a Marxist regime that emerges from 67 until around 19, mid-1980s. Uh, South Yemen is very much isolated from the larger world, um, with the exception of the Soviet bloc, and especially from northern Yemen. And in the meantime, northern Yemen is going to be struggling with this legacy of the Nasser invasion and occupation, the cultivation of a political class who are going to use this language of the Arab Cold War. Anyone who is associated with a religious institution, anyone who professes strongly a religious belief, yeah, it must be deemed as dangerous, potentially dangerous, and treated accordingly. And so so-called conservative forces versus progressive forces in North Yemen would then have a perpetual struggle throughout the 1970s. And this is where the Americans formally come in. Uh, and this is uh, explained in Chapter 4. They come in with their aid agencies. Uh, the United Nations starts coming in with their, um, uh, let's say, seconded experts who can come from the West, mostly from the United States. They come and start the process of trying to modernize uh, northern Yemen. Again, the discourse is this is a backward medieval society. It's just come out of a long, enduring civil war, which the civil war narrative is also very problematic, which they used still today, as if Yemenis are responsible for the violence that's taking place today. Um, exonerating, of course, the outsiders who are just coming in to try to negotiate a settlement of the civil war. This is, again, a very a tactic that is used throughout the world, and it's, uh, it's not an accurate reflection of what actually induces conflict in, on many occasions. And in the 1970s, this is certainly playing itself out uh, between various factions who see themselves now in the frame that is set, established by uh, the narratives, the expertise that's coming from the outside. Yemen is a country in conflict because of, you have a small university-educated class of technocrats who were uh, initially introduced into uh, the functioning, day-to-day -day functioning of governance under Nasser's occupation. Nasser uh, introduced the Bank Misr, or the, the official central bank of Egypt, as the bank for North Yemen, uh, and trained accordingly with Yemen and U.S. money a generation of bureaucrats, technocrats, who could work in these various modern government institutions, telecommunications, uh, medical, uh, so health uh, was one, and agriculture was another important uh, place of intervention, zone of intervention for these external actors, especially the Americans, because Yemen's very rich. It's very rich, agriculturally speaking. It has tons of water. Uh, the problem is, is that they were very self-sufficient and the political leadership that had emerged in the 1970s out of this morass of war in the 60s, still with this strong sense of independence that we, we, we don't trust these Europeans coming in here and telling us that, that we should do this, that or the other. We should start adopting a cash economy, we should start building banks, sent, uh, starting a process of loaning money. Uh, we will give you the initial uh, financing for this system of uh, if offering development loans to farmers to do something other than feed our own people. They did not like this idea. And so they, there was this last generation that resisted this. And they, they, they established these wonderful systems of uh, 
of, of, of social um, exchange uh, where they, they collectively took on the burden of building infrastructure. They would collectively work to uh, establish uh, uh, weekly farm, uh, sorry, weekly markets where they would agree on uh, maintaining control over pricing to make sure that everybody had uh, a reasonable amount of uh, access to food. Uh, they were actually self-sufficient still in the mid-1970s. Under a very charismatic leader, they had a very interesting system that the Americans, especially, they sent PhD and anthropologists to go and study in the 70s with uh, USAID as the primary intermediary. USAID, which was based in the embassy. So I, I actually looked in the archives and I looked at some of these uh, reports coming back from these PhD students, many of whom became then experts who are still experts today on Yemen, who are de facto agents of empire uh, in the 70s. And they were writing reports and uh, very details about how these soci this society, these communities are actually cooperating together, how they're resolving conflicts, how they are building infrastructure without any in international uh, expertise, without the money coming from the IMF and elsewhere. So North Yemen had a model for independence, and this is something that had to be disrupted. So the Americans would get a couple of ambitious young men, send them to Arizona, to Nebraska, to learn industrial agriculture. In India, the same thing happened throughout the 70s and 80s. They would always find a couple willing uh, young, young people to go and get indoctrinated, become PhDs, experts on certain forms of farming, that used petrochemicals, that used uh, uh, these anti, uh, you know, all these horrible things that had long-term consequences on the, on, on the ecology of our societies, but also on choosing the right crops. So there became a time when there was a lot of pressure put on North Yemen to start moving towards cash crops, to export. And, and as the Americans did in Egypt and other countries that could have been if they went in a different direction, self-sufficient in food, America offered Nasser basically subsidized wheat for as long as Egypt needs it. And until today, Egypt is completely dependent on American uh, wheat that is shipped to Egypt when they could have been self-sufficient. In northern Yemen also, they were encouraged to produce tobacco or cot, you know, the drug that they are, they are chewing, uh, or coffee or cotton. Why are you producing tomatoes and cucumbers and wheat for your own community? You're not producing any revenue. You're not producing any uh, national revenue for the state. And so you need to produce income. And one of your assets is agriculture. Uh, so this is one of those terrible, terrible moments in which there's a lot of pressure. There's a new generation coming back from the United States with PhDs. They, there's money allocated to them to develop these, these, uh, these initial projects uh, to try to develop agriculture for export. And there's a lot of pressure for the, the entire economy to take this, to follow this direction. And there was resistance, however, from the political leadership who were eventually assassinated, as you often have in, the, in, in these, whether it be in Guatemala, or whether it be in, um, in many parts of Western Africa, assassination took place. And 
the the one who replaced the the resilient last generation of let's say those who believed that Yemen could operate independent of this global system was Ali Abdullah Saleh in 1978 and he would be that eventually dictator who took north yemen all the way to the point of unification in 1980 and then to the 2010-2011 crisis that led to the war that we are now talking about today so there's a continuity that is important for us to understand which i, I describe in the book is a 20th century story yemen is part of a global process of transformation and they were for very principled resistance to being integrated into this global system. And the resistance was, what was, was uh, quite successful uh, up until the late 1970s, early 1980s. Uh, when Ali Abdullah Salah takes power, he's able to consolidate control over the military. It becomes a more or less a military dictatorship. And then he makes the, the, the most important uh, uh, deals with George Bush Sr., when he was vice president of the United States. Remember, he was a head of the CIA before in China and ran uh, the operations in China when Nixon and Ford integrated communist China into the United States sphere with Kissinger's help. Uh, so Bush Sr. representing Hunt Oil, a company in uh, Oklahoma, make their first overtures to northern Yemen with Ali Abdullah Saleh as their intermediary to initiate this process of finally exploiting Yemen's oil. But Yemen's most of the known resources remained in the deserts on the other side of this border that had been created between the British and the Ottomans and then later recognized by the UN in South Marxist Southern Yemen. And it's exactly at this time in 1985, 86, where you begin to see political troubles within the Communist Party. Let's say the, let's say the leading, the ruling party inside South Yemen. Uh, you had a coup. There was a small uh, uh, battle taking place in Aden, and a new generation of leadership emerges that would now start the process of negotiating with Ali Abdullah Saleh and the Americans as intermediaries again, serving the interest of oil companies, to start the process of unification. And um, the, the key uh, area is this Marib area that today is the main battlefield right now that's shaping the international reaction, the Biden administration's revamp, revamping American direct involvement in the fighting of this war since 2015. Because remember, Biden is in many ways, an extension of the Clinton administration and the Obama administration. Many of the principals who helped start this war in 2015, who tried to control the Arab Springs of 2010-2011, Samantha Power, Victoria Nuland, uh, uh, Susan Rice, Blickling, these people are back in power with Biden and they're now uh, reintegrating the assets they used in 2012, 13, 14, especially through Qatar. You notice that um, uh, Biden met with the ruler of Qatar last week and publicly stated that Qatar is our main intermediary. It is our main ally. Qatar helped the Americans in this so-called evacuation of Afghanistan. Qatar has maintained very good relations with Taliban. T Qatar is now going to be reintegrated into a major player in Yemen's war.
because their main assets, Islah Party and the Muslim Brotherhood, who have been fighting wars in Syria and Libya, often with uh, in tandem with the Turkish support, uh, who have considerable military capacity, an ideologue in Erdogan who seems to be quite popular in some parts of the world, they've been able to really have an influence in these conflict zones with their human assets. And, and, and when uh, in 2017, this coalition breaks, breaks apart. Uh, uh, Qatar is isolated. It's um, uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia almost uh, invade Qatar uh, in 2017. Uh, Erdogan had to send uh, two plane loads of special forces and basically bring NATO to the border between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Uh, and that saved the, the regime in Qatar. But um, this is a part then where in my book, I actually then highlight again, one of the main problems of how we talk about the war in Yemen. It is a war that there in fact has a war within that war. The coalition is a coalition in name only. It is in fact a puzzle. It's, it's a, a three distinctive interests, interested parties who have lots of pressure on them, on their regimes, as we can see, uh, and it's manifested often in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and UAE, even today. And we can I can explain more if you want. Uh, but the, the re one of the reasons why the coalition actually has not been able to secure military victory in key battlefronts is because they are actually fighting each other as much as fighting this northern alliance that is trying to preserve Yemeni sovereignty. Um, so especially the UAE, um, if I can go quickly through this process of their logic, yeah. the UAE had a very good relation with Ali Abdullah Saleh in Yemen. Um, uh, it was primarily through the UAE that Ali Abdullah Saleh's, let's say, uh, external, um, the, the, let's say the exportation of his, the wealth that he was able to accumulate. Some of his uh, rivals claim he stole $100 billion from the Yemen economy and then distributed it elsewhere. Uh, money laundering is a, is a classic, uh, let's say, um, modus operandi for, for Dubai in particular. Uh, this is a safe haven for uh, in Indian gold or from Nigerian um, uh, oil money or, or cocaine money from Colombia much like Hawaii, uh, sorry, Miami was in the 1980s for the Western Hemisphere, Dubai was this key area of where you could uh, secure, find a secure safe haven for your money if you were a dictator, if you were a drug lord or something else of that nature. So banks like BCCI, which has clear CIA connections, um, the collaboration between the ruler of Dubai with these uh, larger global forces um, is something that really makes and Dubai distinctive in the region. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, soon, soon enough, Abu Dhabi, uh, with its its primary role is to uh, its territory is producing much of UAE's uh, oil and gas wealth, uh, has a problem with uh, securing political control over. The, the, the elements that are taking and shaping uh, the larger region, because Dubai is serving this much different role that is uh, very in many ways outside the domain of 
Abu Dhabi's govern ability to govern as a fed, as the capital of a federation that the British had established before they left in 1971. So Dubai operated much independently. The problem is that by the 1980s, uh, oil prices had got, dropped to 10, 12, 13 dollars, and uh, it's a very interesting. Um, if you think of put it in this context, that why would George Bush Sr. and Hunt Oil uh, seek to have access to very expensive uh, corner of the world, which would cost a lot of money to actually extract oil and gas from, uh, well, um, uh, more than the actual profits that could be gleaned from uh, pumping out of uh, southern Yemen in 1986. If you look at the oil prices, it just didn't make any economic sense. And yet it was a significant investment in securing access to Yemen. And the reason is, is because uh, Yemen is largely unexplored for oil and gas. Although geologically, if you look at its relationship, it's primarily with the Horn of Africa. And Italian, French, British uh, geologists have already discovered huge amounts of gas and oil off the coast, especially Somalia. And so they know geologically that it's precisely the same dynamic that extends all the way to the territorial waters of southern Yemen. And southern Yemen, uh, being a Marxist, principled Marxist state in 1984-85, uh, but did not have the financial means to drill and, and explore on their own, the Soviets certainly at that stage could not provide them uh, uh, that kind of capacity. It reached out to China, which also said it's not economically feasible. Brazil tried here and there, but they had limited means. So you needed big oil to actually uh, subsidize this process of actually discovering what is actually here. But they suspected there's huge amounts. And by the unification in 1990, it became clear that Yemen is uh, very, very rich in minerals. Uh, very, very rich in oil and gas. And the, the primary beneficiary of opening up Yemen's resources uh, for uh, development would be, and that's the struggle in the region, who is going to be the beneficiary? Yemenis despise Saudi Arabia. They despise the Saud family. Uh, even in the 1970s, the, the capitulation yet again to uh, American imperialism, the the way they handled the so-called embargo against Israel in 73 was to undermine uh, the, the, the use of oil as a weapon. So no one in Yemen wanted to, have to touch anything that had to deal with Saudi Arabia. And this was a problem because uh, by the point of unification, this became a political albatross for Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had to play by American rules. Um, but that did not necessarily mean that he could survive politically if he then suddenly embraces uh, working with Saudi through Aramco and Saudi interests and American interests. So he had to kind of play a balancing act politically in his, amongst his own constituents, especially when he's now unified Yemen. And it brings in this vast territory, underpopulated territory, with this huge amount of uh, oil and gas, wealth, minerals, etc. And that actually leads to tensions inside Yemen itself. Unfortunately, they would lead to a war uh, in which old 
um, forces in southern Yemen who had seen that the unification was really a land grab and a power grab by Ali Abdullah Saleh and his allies who were increasingly being identified not only as the Americans but also Abu Dhabi, also conservative regimes in the Gulf, uh, which is something that really upset at the ideological level let alone the political economy, economic level, uh, many actors in Yemen who, are, again, um, are, are not um, uh, in tune to the strategies of, of Ali Abdullah Saleh's overtures to America and the larger global economy. So you have a, a principled resistance to what they are beginning to see is happening in Yemen. They've been duped into unification. They have been uh, denied the ability to actually integrate well into uh, govern governing institutions. It becomes a, one that's dominated by the uh, much larger populated northern Yemen with Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, um, the primary beneficiary, at the expense of these those who agreed to unification on this idea that uh, Yemen would become a great uh, country, an independent country, militarily very capable, that with resources that could be shared and distributed to all of us. That was not happening. So by 1993, there was an election which Ali Abdullah Saleh was able to dominate. Many say it was a free election. Uh, it did represent and did reflect the diversity of interest and competing parties, but that ultimately diluted the ability of the Southern Yemenis, especially old Marxists, to have any influence. And they were very being quickly, crudely pushed aside as a result of these elections with the Americans supporting this and getting them out. And that induced a conflict with uh, the Saudis and the UAE and other players now providing support for opposite forces. It, what, what actually it ultimately happened, it, it destroyed the ability of Yemen to actually function as a country that could work and operate through a central government with power distributed uh, with, through a parliament. Uh, and um, it had to basically be, and, and it gravitated towards a military dictatorship. Uh, not in formal way, it would remain a parliamentary government. Uh, it, they would have elections. There would be contestation of rival political parties. But increasingly, it became necessary to project power from Ali Abdullah Salas. Uh, GPC party and the the military that he's going to now develop, which the Americans are going to now help develop, because there's a new factory at play here. Uh, one, because Ali Abdullah Saleh's political um, range of uh, uh, support required that he maintain a principled distance to Saudi Arabia, to the oil countries that were um, by 1990. Uh, they had hired upwards of a million two hundred thousand Yemenis who were primarily working uh, cleaning streets in the military uh, as soldiers, police officers, or in the oil industry. All those Yemenis, uh, they were sending money back. They are also now beginning to uh, re uh, adapt after some 10, 15 years living in Saudi Arabia. Uh, with their whole families there. Their kids are going to Saudi schools. This is when you begin to see niqab emerging in Yemeni culture. Uh, women are going back to Yemen, bringing Saudi values, if you will. And this is now a point of entry for Saudi Arabia in a society that had historically uh, were very hostile to Wahhabism, 
to Saudi, uh, especially the Saudi ent enterprise, because it occupies Yemeni territories. And now this fine, this is a new point of leverage, that there, uh, that there are a million Yemenis in Saudi territories who are being acculturated into becoming more culturally speaking Saudi than traditionally what their uh, their their parents and their grandparents had espoused back home in Yemen. It is also uh, Yemen, and especially these Yemenis men who are working in Saudi Arabia, uh, going back occasionally back home. Uh, enforcing a family structure that is very much reflective of Saudi values, not Yemeni values. Also, ideologically, they're beginning to start thinking that these, these Sufis, these Zaidi Shia, are not proper Muslims. That Islam um, is becoming now a point of tension in Yemeni society. And this is going to be cultivated already uh, because of the role that Yemenis are going to play in the wars in Afghanistan. Uh, we remember that bin Laden, who was, uh, his family is from Yemen. His father moves to Saudi Arabia and, be, and eventually becomes a powerful uh, player in the uh, economy, especially in construction. His son, Osama bin Laden, um, becomes much like many other Yemenis who uh, end up living in Saudi Arabia, adapting something very different from his father. His father was a, was a businessman. He was, he was very cosmopolitan. But his son, Usama, was someone who uh, embraced this idea of um, a radical Islam that can be revolutionary, very much like what happened in Iran, but one that had to deviate from the message of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, to one that is explicitly being going to be used to uh, attack Soviet expansion, the evil communism that uh, spread around the world. So... Uh, 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 atheism, but also Shiism, also Sufism, any any reference to the Prophet, any uh, like again as the Saudis had done in the 1920s and 1930s to Western Arabia, to parts of Yemen, they are now exporting this phenomena, um, what we call political Islam, takfirism, um, the first generation of imams who were trained in this school in Medina in 1961 established. Uh, they're now going out, and by 1980s, they're now going back to their home countries. They're going like colonizers to India, to Pakistan, to Indonesia, to the Balkans. And they're going to now spread what Osama bin Laden is able to then project uh, a group of hardened ideologues who are going to go and fight in places like Afghanistan, um, funded, supplied by the CIA when necessary, by Pakistan, um, under, um, what is his name? Uh, I can't remember his name now, suddenly. Okay. Uh, the, the general who had long collaborated with the Americans to fight. The old Huck. Huck. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Huck. Yes. Huck. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, so that would be the legacy of that whole process. Of it. Uh, again, thanks to George Bush Sr., former CIA guy, they're going to now, through their Saudi assets, Osama bin Laden, who's actually Yemeni, they're going to now recruit a group, a large number of tak, uh, takfiri mujahideen. They're going to go off and take control of the resistance in Afghanistan, eliminate those who are much had different ideas and different projects through Zia Haq's own kind of hardcore uh, takfiri kind of orientation associated with BCCI. There's money that's circulating from the third world, landing in in Dubai is going to be used to 
illegally finance these operations because uh, under Ronald Reagan's period and then under Bill Clinton's period, it became uh, under George Bush and then Clinton, uh, these kinds of operations were somewhat being monitored by American Congress. Uh, there were journalists still uh, reporting on these, uh, these, these enterprises, these American CIA operations that inst instigated conflict around the world and that um, uh, had close connections to cocaine money that was circulating the world. And so BCCI, Dubai, became very much part of this larger story that blowed up into scandal eventually. Yemenis are part of the story because uh, at the same time as Osama bin Laden is partly um, sees Yemen as home and that the manpower to produce this first wave of Takfiri fighters who will go and project American interests in, in, uh, through culture, if necessary, through these, these armed uh, groups trained by CIA in the Muslim world, eventually to actually help destabilize this transition phase from the Soviet Union to post-Soviet world, where we see in Tajikistan, we see in Turkmenistan, we see in Chechnya, we see these, these groups that are emerging who have, uh, uh, again, their same origins as those Takfiri uh, Al-Qaeda groups that are emerging in Yemen. The war in 1994 that I mentioned, this war between Ali Abdullah Salah, uh, uh, who has this power grab, the success of this war is largely on the back of two things. One, he's able to capitalize and control over much of the Yemeni military. He's going to use Scud missiles. He's going to shoot missiles into southern Yemen, much like those same missiles that are going now into Saudi Arabia. The Yemeni state was firing missiles into parts of resistance in southern Yemen. But he's also going to use these radical Takfiri groups, armed groups who have now experience from Afghanistan. He's go, they're going to be shipped down and help provide the manpower when the Yemeni military is proven to be, I don't want to shoot my fellow countrymen. Well, now they're going to use the language of, these are not real Muslims. These are atheists from South Yemen. These are Sufis from Hadramaut, or they're uh, Shia in the north. And so you begin to see the state, Yemeni state under Ali Abdullah Saleh, cynically use this new phenomena of political Islam. And because hundreds of thousands of Yemenis are actually had been integrated in the system, whether they knew that or not, they have now the political orientation, they have the cultural values that are shared by these takfiris. You begin to see Yemeni society being torn apart along these seams. Because in 1990, of course, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh's politics forced him to be sympathetic to Saddam Hussein against Kuwait. And that was the pretext to expel a million, a million hundred thousand Yemenis from the Gulf economies as a punishment for uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh saying, why can't we negotiate? Why do we have to have this invasion uh, and then this uh, occupation of Iraq? Let's negotiate. Let's figure out a way amongst Arab brothers. We are all part of the Arab world, we should be able to do the Arab League negotiate. Why do we have these Americans or uh, Europeans getting involved? So the punishment, was, the punishment, which Ali Abdullah Saleh exploited, was the arrival of a million plus Yemenis who don't have an income anymore. And that's a liability. That becomes something very dangerous for any uh, government, even if they have 
the control of the military and the police. It's a destabilizing factor that Ali Abdullah Saleh and his allies, his, uh, I'm pretty sure one day we'll find in American archives through WikiLeaks or something else, that they were clearly working together. Use this potential dangerous force that has, who have a very strong Saudi-like orientation about Yemen, who don't want to now live as neighbors with uh, Zaidi Shia or Sufis or atheists, use them as a military force to now take full control over Yemen, especially South Yemen, because we know that South Yemen has much of the oil and gas. If this was a coalition, a unified country on the basis of agreed sharing of power, the Southerners would not appreciate having the lion's share of the wealth extracted from their territories now going into the pockets of Ali Abdullah Saleh and his, his, his allies in the Americas through George Bush Sr. So the war was very convenient in 1994. It also unleashed an opportunity for colonization, internal colonization. Ali Abdullah Saleh allowed Northerners, especially those who came from the Gulf, with uh, their ideas to go and establish and become dominant populations in much of southern Yemen. And so you see southern Yemen colonized by northern Yemenis, which caused yet another wave of resentment and tension that exists until today, which is one of the reasons why in, at the, in 2011, uh, southerners who remembered 1994, who remembered this process of invasion of not only northern Yemenis, but takfiri northern Yemenis. So uh, political Islam is a tool now of, the, of Ali Abdullah Saleh's uh, state to colonize southern Yemen, to steal their resources, to push southerners out of their, uh, their prime territories. Ali Abdullah Saleh is not only doing this and working with American oil companies or with Total, but he's working also through the UAE. He's working especially through Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Dubai Port World in the mid-1990s becomes the primary investor in uh, developing and building South Yemen's infrastructure, especially along the coast, from roads to ports. Huge swaths of Aden, the capital, former capital of, of southern Yemen, has become de facto deep, uh, DP, so Dubai Ports World's territories, or space to develop. And this is just seen as another form of northern colonization another form of southern Yemenis losing their country. They're being pushed out of their own cities now, not only by takfiris who are coming from the north, but now by these Gulf countries that are, uh, again, people still remember the Marxist time. They remember the, the ideology that, you know, this is capitalism coming here, just as we were warned when we were going to school, it's now being, it's emerging as a reality. And uh, this ends up becoming another part of the evolution, if you will, of the different pockets of resistance, not only to Ali Abdullah Saleh, but pockets of resistance to the larger integration that Yemen is going through uh, with the larger global economy. After the Cold War ends, as we see throughout Central Asia, as we see through much of the uh, uh, world, uh, globalization is put on um, speed. Uh, it's going at high speed. The, the process is overwhelmingly fast. It's very hard to adjust. Peoples in Yemen are beginning to see now suddenly uh, 
the government has allowed for large tracts of state assets, especially at state lands, to be privatized. UAE, especially UAE, but increasingly Qatar is becoming involved in the, uh, in the Yemeni economy. Qatar is invested in property development. They're developing these uh, uh, isolated, uh, uh, kind of exclusive uh, zones for uh, only Qataris or rich Yemenis to live in, so gated communities. So a phenomenon that we're seeing throughout the world in this period of, of late 1990s and 2000s, it's also happening in Yemen. And that is creating a new wave of frustration and anger, which is matted out by Ali Abdullah Salah through these Takfiri groups. There's, uh, the war is going to be, the blame is going to be now distributed at other Yemenis. It's because these backward Zaidi tribal people of the mountains that if we get rid of them, then there will be resources for you guys who have not been pushed aside by Qatar, who, of course, on the other side, through Al Jazeera and through their own system, is developing um, its own sphere of influence through these Muslim Brotherhood groups that they're very handsomely funding at this stage. And they're, uh, they see Yemen as a zone of economic development because all three of these major oil-producing, gas-producing Gulf countries who have ambitions to be global players, who are encouraged by the Americans to, and are in many ways forced by the Americans to reinvest their, their earnings, their, uh, their credit. Most of these countries are actually not producing uh, annual um, uh, savings. They're actually producing... Uh, through uh, borrowing money, they're actually able to then invest in infrastructure development, these mega projects that cost hundreds of billions of dollars. And they're always, of course, going to be the lion's share of the contracts are going to go to uh, Western uh, interests. In the case of uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai becoming a major player in, in building up Yemen, including uh, a project that was initially... Uh, uh, run by the Bin Laden group to build a bridge between Djibouti and Yemen to connect Africa with Yemen. The idea was that Yemen and Ethiopia especially would be the breadbasket for the Arabian Peninsula. It would be the source of the cheap labor and would be eventually also a source of the water, the, the dam that Ethiopia with the American, initially American support and, and UNDP help World Bank help to dam up the Blue Nile in Ethiopia, which is causing so much uh, tension between Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt, was to provide the water for massive uh, agriculture uh, um, expansion, to produce broccoli for um, uh, UAE supermarkets, to produce uh, the other food products that Saudi Arabia uh, that and the Gulf would need over the next 20, 30 years. So food security, which we hear quite often about, for the Arabian Peninsula is Yemen, integrating Yemen and the Horn of Africa. Water security, the only way that Saudi Arabia can, who are desperately trying to find new sources of revenue, is again, oil is not there. In the long term, they will, they're running out of oil. They're already heavily indebted. They're, they're, they're politically, they're completely dependent on Americans for security. 
They need to find a way to survive the next 20, 30 years. The financial crashes of 2008 and the one that happened in 2019 devastated much of the Middle East. Uh, I'm speaking to you right now from Lebanon, where they, they had one of those financial haircuts that Cyprus got. Uh, they, $120 billion was just sucked out of uh, people's bank accounts here, and they'll never see it again. This is happening with Saudi Arabia, uh, with the UAE, and Qatar uh, as well. There's huge financial pressure. They have uh, over-leveraged their future productivity to borrow money to build their, their glass towers today, to spend their hundreds of billions of dollars on weapons systems, which has, as we see with the war in Yemen, produced zero capacity to actually win military victories against rivals, regional rivals, which means that all this money actually functions in a different way. And that's one of the reasons why in 2015, they were easily coerced into being the front men for what was ultimately an American uh, concern about maintaining stability over the larger Middle East. They wanted youth revolutions to be managed by their interests, by their assets. In Yemen, the vast majority of the people who supported and got to the streets were not with these assets, like Tawakal Karman, who was awarded a peace prize by Stockholm for her role. She is a, um, a terrible example, however. She's an instigator of, of, of uh, sectarianism. She's a bigot. Her, her discourse ultimately made her so marginal in Yemen that she's now living um, isolated and completely forgotten about in Istanbul. She was a Clintonite, Qatari, uh, Turkish-supported ideologue who was supposed to take over the revolution in Yemen, very much like we saw in Egypt and Tunisia and supposedly in Syria if they had militarily successfully taken power. You would have had these youngish, um, uh, seemingly charismatic, but ideologically very narrow, very... Uh, uh, sectarian in, 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 in rhetoric, taking over these revolutions and representing the integration of these areas that had long been outside the sphere of, I mean, Libya was completely independent from, um, politically speaking, from the sphere of influence that the Europeans and Americans had hoped for. So, but, but because of the financial crisis, because both, all three of these coalition partners um, had their own objectives, they had their own interests, they had their own survival uh, uh, demands. They needed to survive somehow. And the only way for them over the long term was to assure that their two other rivals, so Qatar versus UAE and Saudi, Saudi versus UAE and Qatar, et cetera, et cetera, was to make sure that the Yemen window of opportunity created by the Obama administration, who could not countenance losing control over what was happening in this transitional phase with Hadi being removed. That um, the invitation to go to war in Yemen was that there was an opportunity for one of them to lay claim to the lion's share of the resources that was going to um, surface once Yemen is subdued and, and brought back into, um, let's say, control. The problem is that people have been resisting. And they, uh, 
while they were very cruel from the beginning, and it's probably one of the reasons why the uh, majority of people in the North still remain attached to this coalition, that from the very first weeks of bombing, they were killing civilians purposely. They were destroying their infrastructure. So people remember this. They said, all you've been doing, even though you're making overtures to us to revolt against the Northern Alliance, we just see you as extensions of this same 20th century story that we've been and our ancestors have been fighting now for over 150 years. This is no different. Yemenis are that are able to articulate that in very clear ways. Even illiterate, uh, backward peoples living in the countryside who don't even have shoes or running water, they understand and are able to make a distinction. And this is very important for this war because, uh, again, the problem for the coalition is that they're actually rivals against each other. They're actually, uh, while they invest heavily in, in mercenaries, uh, very few of their own uh, citizens are fighting in this war. Most of them are uh, paid mercenaries from Sudan. Uh, some uh, Australians and Americans are on the ground. Uh, but again, mostly Africans who are doing the dying on, and, and some Yemenis dying on the battlefields, protecting and projecting rival projects. For Saudi Arabia, it's to f bring some stability, but also to acquire access to the Arabian Sea. Uh, they are trying to gain access to Yemeni oil and gas. Uh, they know that this will save Aramco. This will save them financially for another generation. If that not, then they're going to have a very difficult time in the next 20, 30 years to, as, a, as, a, as a dynasty to survive because they're financially completely... Um, have reached the limits of their capacities to actually produce uh, revenue from oil and gas. They've been trying to encourage investment in Saudi Arabia. They've last year tried to issue an IPO for a percentage of Aramco, no interest whatsoever. They basically forced their own citizens to invest in Aramco, promising the richer Saudis that they would be a guaranteed return every year, which they have to now subsidize by borrowing more money they're trying to create this image that they have changed, that they're creating a very hip uh, youth uh, economy where there's famous people coming down, hip hop singers coming and singing in Jeddah or something. They have a F1 uh, race taking place there. They have the uh, Paris Dakar race coming through. They want to market themselves as a place to invest your money, to, to, as, a, as, a, as opposed to Dubai or as opposed to other places, which are all equally investing in similar ways to try to get Nigerian money, to try to get Indian money to come and invest. I mean, today you're offered a golden visa in the UAE or in Dubai or Abu Dhabi if you bring a million dollars of investment to the economy. This is something that even the Greeks are doing. You see signs everywhere here in Lebanon. Buy a house in Greece and we'll give you a, a golden visa. Portugal. Everyone is in the same boat, desperately trying to find other people's money. But there is none of that. It's not around. They can't, they can't finance these projects that would provide them the security for another generation. Uh, politically, Saudi Arabia has been killing itself, eating itself. Um, Mohammed bin Salman has actually been taking princes and torturing them at the Ritz-Carlton, forcing them to unleash their, their secret accounts in Switzerland or Marbella because they need the money. Most notoriously, they even arrested 
the, uh, was, who was the prime minister here of Lebanon, the, the son of Rifat Hariri. He was kidnapped and was forced to open up his accounts and forced to go back to Lebanon to make arrangements that Lebanese money would help subsidize the Saudi economy. And the same applies to Abu Dhabi and Qatar. And this is why in 2017, that what was, as I lay, uh, itemize in the show, in the book, is one of the main motivating factors for all three to jump into this war in Yemen and hope that they could actually secure uh, a significant portion of the spoils of war, which has now resulted in uh, an endless drain on their financing, an endless drain on their capacity to influence and, and attract investors. Uh, countries like UAE doesn't survive without the, the glitz of people going to uh, Dubai Expo 2020 right, and going on vacation during winter time or buying an apartment uh, somewhere in Dubai or in uh, Abu Dhabi. But now that's, that's, it's very difficult when you have now drones coming in and dropping little bombs in airports. And there's news circulating that maybe uh, it's not safe to go to UAE. This is the vulnerability of the UAE's economy. Because the moment people don't come to vacation, that means those apartment buildings that they've been building and people who have invested in these, um, uh, were, were, they were promised they would get rental uh, uh, revenues from the rents of these apartments. If that sh dries up, there will be no financing, no more Indians coming with their gold, they will go somewhere else. Uh, which again, there are plenty of competitors everywhere in the world now. You have people trying to coax anyone with money to come and settle. Even Switzerland is now developing a new system, just desperately trying to get people to come and bring their money into their accounts in Switzerland, while the Americans are desperately trying to get them to move their money out of these, these safe havens, if you will. So it's, it's a financial war. It's a war that cannot be understood strictly on, on ideological lines. It is certainly not a war between Yemenis. It, it's not a war between different uh, rival Sunni Shia groups. It is not even a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, as it's often sold. This is a, a war that is very much an extension of this globalization process that has implicated all of our societies, whether you're in India, in uh, Zanzibar, in Yemen, or even in the heart of Europe. The, we're all experiencing the same kind of, uh, at, at various levels of violence, of course. Uh, there are certain areas that will have, uh, until now, survived without having to deal with the uh, direct application of violent uh, means of ex wealth extraction. But Yemeni has, is, is not something unique. It is not, uh, some, it's not a conflict that is uh, Yemeni. It is, a it is part of a global process that we have to understand in those terms. And uh, in the end, uh, there, there is no place for these Yemenis to go. And unfortunately for the coalition, there, there's no way for them to actually win this war other than to sustain this very costly, very uh, inhuman uh, uh, war on civilians, on people who can't defend themselves from million-dollar bombs that are dropping from the sky that are produced in somewhere in Massachusetts or somewhere in southern France. And, and um, in the end, this will continue on until the politics of these three countries that are involved now in this struggle of survival 
as I predicted at the end of the book, one of these or two of these regimes will not survive. Uh, the fa Saud family will break apart. Saudi Arabia will break apart into multiple different kind of small little statelets. UAE is very close to, uh, they have a lot of tensions inside the United Arab Emirates at the moment between Dubai and, uh, and Abu Dhabi. And we know that Qatar was very close to being eliminated uh, in 2017. They seem to have now, with the Biden administration, reemerged as the primary intermediary for Americans and maybe even Israel in the long term to uh, sustain their spheres of influence. Um, but uh, this is a war that uh, cannot end is for these three actors. Unfortunately, they cannot just say, Khalas, that's enough, we're getting out. Uh, Donald Trump made that quite clear in one of his more charismatic, notorious speeches, making the, making the joke that he picks up the phone and tells the king of Saudi Arabia, in two weeks, if we stop our support, you're gone, guy. You know, you're going to have to keep bringing the money. You have to keep paying us cash for those weapons that we expect you to buy in order to fight this war that is basically on our behalf. Trump was very, uh, very blunt about how he understood this system working. And I think that's much more an accurate way of us understanding this war uh, and the larger um, way it, it plays into the larger world than these, these tricks of the experts who are saying it's all about intertribal conflict, it's war between Sunni Shia, it's a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, exonerating the West, exonerating the Americans, when you hear about bombs falling in Abu Dhabi, how, how awful and evil are those terrorists in Yemen? Which, of course, then completely forgotten is this fact that this is a war that's been going on for 2015 and much earlier, if you consider what some of the information that provided here. So um, this is crucial for us if we're going to have any impact on um, changing the dynamics on the ground in Yemen is to actually start changing how we talk about Yemen. Right. So it's very clear to me now that colonialism and imperialism have never really ended. They have just been given new labels. And all of these conflicts have been created and orchestrated by the Western powers for their own benefit. And integrating nations into the global economy is one of the ways of colonizing them and destroying them. So in your opinion, will it take the destruction of two of, the, of these three external players for the conflict to end? What's the best way forward from the perspective of the Yemeni people? Mm -hmm. Uh, they have to continue to resist. Uh, subordination does not, um, is, surrendering is not an option. Uh, I think maybe another generation or two, it becomes something where uh, capitulation is something that is, is an option. But right now, uh, the, the wounds are still too raw. Everyone has lost family. Everyone has lost family to, uh, because of the very specific acts identifiable associated with these three different family ruling families who are again are in the middle of a, of a struggle between themselves over survival uh, and survival means acquiring Yemeni's assets means becoming the main principal uh, force intermediaries if you will between the global economy and how wealth is extracted from Yemen um, these families have served that purpose in extracting the wealth from their own countries, right? Uh, they, the money is in a rentier system somewhat redistributed to other, uh, a narrow def definition of who is a citizen of Saudi Arabia or Qatar or UAE, but 
and the vast majority of the people who actually live in UAE are exploited as uh, expendable labor, as we know. Uh, and uh, this is something that they want to apply and have to apply to Yemen. Uh, and, and therefore, they can't stop. Uh, and no doubt the Obama, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Biden administration or any other administration that is in the United States are not going to push for a solution until they get what they want, which is control over the uh, the day-to-day uh, -day leadership of and decision-making inside Yemen itself. One of the things that they have proposed, pushed through their, their puppet Hadi in 2014, was the Federation of Yemen, which to break Yemen into a federated entities with two federated zones for where all the natural resources are, with especially offshore. Offshore is going to be a major factor here uh, moving forward, which China and the Americans are all working to try to exploit from fisheries to offshore gas and oil, as we see in the Mediterranean as well. Uh, those will be the two designated uh, federated zones that will have, at best, a million people living in this vast territory. So very easy to recreate this frontier system where you, you corrupt certain groups of people in a very limited population to just behave politically, stay out, stay out of politics. You'll get your money, you'll get your nice TV, you'll get a, a little pension. And the vast majority of the people who should be sharing this wealth will be denied access to it in these other federated zones. With Sana'a, and the rich highlands with 23, 25 million people getting nothing of the national economy. That was their scheme in 2014. And the people of northern Yemen said, no way. We know what you're doing. You've done this in so many other places in the world. And you're not going to do this here. We have the capacity, the means, and the history to stand up for ourselves. And so they tried to upset this. They tried to assassinate people. They tried to use sectarianism. And now they're doing uh, the, the last option that they have, which is invasion. And it's, it seems that Biden is, is uh, especially invested. Now, when I mention Biden, it's not him. It's the circle of people around him. He's, this, you know, he's barely conscious anymore. Uh, but um, he was always an instrument for other interests. Uh, it seems that they will maybe take the route of Libya or Syria, where they will just simply have a perpetual war and extract the wealth. There's an Austrian company and Total and Hunt Oil again. They're making, uh, they're producing about 34, 35,000 barrels a day of oil, which they're putting into the global market. So they're profiting from this, not paying any state taxes, maybe a couple of militiamen. Uh, to corrupt, but that's about it. So there is this uh, systematic plundering of Yemen's natural resources, and the war still goes on. So it's a win-win for some actors. They make money, and they have a lot of power through the violent side. And in the meantime, the natural resources, which is one of the primary objectives in the first place, to be extracted in a profitable way, are very profitably being extracted without any state involved, just like with eastern Libya, just like with northeastern Syria, uh, which is being plundered of hundreds of billions of dollars of its oil wealth. The same is happening to Yemen right now. So that actually may be, in the long term, what's happening is a perpetuation of war and violence, 
just fly planes, drop ordinances, make sure that these guys in the north don't take over the oil fields, which they're very close to doing. This is what has happened since uh, late last year. They were able to move in and isolate and actually threaten to take oil wells. At some point, they did take some oil and gas fields in Shabwa. And then the UAE, uh, with Biden's uh, push, bring in these special forces, they call the giants, who are all masked. They're huge guys, so they're clearly Westerners. They're not Yemenis, right? They're clearly Western uh, mercenaries who um, are special forces, and they successfully pushed back the uh, Northern Alliance, Ansarullah, out of these oil-producing areas. And, and as a result, the response was, okay, Abu Dhabi, you want to play this? We're going to fire some more missiles to remind you that we can destroy your economy at any moment. Reverse what uh, you are doing here. S stay out of these territories, these conflicts. Uh, you, and again, these guys in the north who are negotiation constantly in Oman with all these other actors know very well the, the tensions between Saudi Arabia uh, UAE and Qatar. They know very well the tensions, domestic tensions within Saudi Arabia. What uh, Mohammed bin Salman needs in order to survive, why he doesn't get a bullet in the head is because he has to shoot everyone else that's around him that he cannot trust. This is not a long-term sustainable uh, regime. There's no way they're going to raise revenue from investors coming from abroad. UAE has been able to, for for until now, really saved itself from being part of this struggle over Yemen's assets. But with a drone attack hitting um, something that gets actually international attention, uh, uh, then they lose everything they have put enormous amounts of uh, efforts into marketing in the first place. So it, this is a struggle now. And you'll notice that um, since that initial spectacular attack, even though there were other ones, subsequently, the media has been telling us that, oh, they were shot down, the missiles were brought down, and there's stability. We don't talk about Yemen again. Uh, but the war continues. It's getting very, it's very nasty. The bombs that have been dropped in the last couple of weeks are uh, outnumbered the last two years in terms of uh, ordinances uh, uh, dropped. So people of northern Yemen are really, really suffering. It's, 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 it's just a terrible uh, existence that they live in. And yet... Uh, they're very so resilient and they're still resisting and they've proven that they their manpower uh, the way they, they they organize themselves they can actually project and and threaten the very things that keep this war going the very things that started this war the need and uh, the, the demand to access the resources that Yemen has uh, so this is the the long term probably uh, war until one of those regimes falls in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE. And until then, they've, they've figured out that you can make money in disasters. You can make money stealing resources without having to deal with the state. Look at Congo, how they've been plundering the Eastern Congo in the middle of the most horrifying, horrifying genocide. Millions and millions of people dead. The cobalt still comes out, right? These people who want to have electric cars, they, they, where are you going to get that raw materials? Well, they're coming from war zones. And this is something that we need to emphasize. And the same applies with Yemen. This is not a war between Yemenis. This is not a, a war between Muslims, as it's marketed. This is a war for resources. It's the plundering and to provide uh, the, 
uh, and subsidize uh, an otherwise unsustainable uh, North Atlantic world, which includes China, by the way. China has, has become joined on board with this operation since the 70s. And so this is, uh, Yemen is fighting a war for, on behalf of all of us, I have to say, who are not beneficiaries of this global s system of plunder. And uh, if we showed a little more solidarity, maybe this, we could actually change the dynamics of uh, these wars, like in Syria or in Yemen or in Congo. But most of us are not, we don't, we're not able to do so, do, do much. And we're, we have our own concerns now. And that's what they exploit. Everyone has their own concerns. Yeah. Well, Dr. Bloomy, thank you so much for an incredibly illuminating talk. I did not know any of these things. I am sure nobody knows about these things. Thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you so much. Well, so much. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to, and to meet you. And hopefully we can speak again at some point. And take care Certainly. of yourself. Yeah. You too. Thank you. Thank you.